This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia honors all life as sacred and works to heal today's issues at their root causes. Calliopeia partners with many projects around a common vision for a future built with love, reverence, and responsibility for our shared home. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many inspiring projects to life and for making our show possible every week. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. I have developed a certain unexpected patience with myself that really mirrors the way that that soil operates, that, that mirrors the pace at which forests develop and communities, ecological communities change over time. Today we are speaking with Dr. Suzanne Pierre. Dr. Pierre is a UC President's Postdoctoral Fellow at UC Berkeley. She is trained as a global change ecologist and biogeochemist and researches the ways that climate change is altering the elemental changes between plants, soils, and microorganisms in different habitats. She started writing about marginalized people's relationships to nature and science in 2013 when she began pursuing a PhD in ecology at Cornell. She's now interested in the ways that human interactions with nature, mediated by science, labor, and freedom, have influenced local and global exchanges of the elements, energy, and social economic power. Suzanne organizes these ideas under the umbrella of critical ecology, a conceptual thoroughfare she is building across the earth and climate sciences, histories of science, the sociology of the environment. You can read some of Dr. Pierre's work on this Instagram at critical underscore ecology. Well, Dr. Pierre, thank you so much for taking this time to join me today. This is a conversation I have been looking forward to for quite a long time. So have I, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Mm, yes, me too. I want to begin our conversation in recognition of what brought you here, the soil. And in preparing for this interview, I was reminded of what often feels like a great schism between what it means to know something scientifically, and what it means to know something intimately. With soil, the scientific approach ultimately feels so reductionist, but it also reminds us of the remarkable properties of soil as a resource for water absorption, carbon sequestration, and as fertile grounds. Yet these reminders still leave something to the imagination. So I'd love if we could begin our conversation with you sharing what it was about soil that brought you to the work that you're doing today? Yeah, there was a book that was really pivotal in my kind of love affair with science and specifically with soil. 
It's called Dirt, the Ecstatic Skin of the Earth by William Logan Bryant. And a good, good friend gave me that book sometime in high school, where I, at that point, was just really in love with and fascinated by the natural world, but only kind of within the scope of my backyard and maybe kind of the larger area in uh, central New Jersey where I grew up. But after reading that book, something happened kind of uh, emotionally or spiritually where I felt like, like something that I had noticed or sensed was affirmed in Bryant's words, which is that there is something holy about soil, that it's this sort of repository of everything that has ever been and ever will be. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere that it needs to be. And it's everywhere where something could be, at least as far as biology is concerned. So yeah, there's this sort of potential that was affirmed by Bryant's words. And and there's a lot more there that I can get into as far as what that represented to me, like the, the sort of power that is inherent in realizing that something that looks inert is actually teeming with life and the giver of life. But yeah, I feel like emotionally and spiritually, that's kind of where things got kicked off for me. Mm-hmm. I hear that. Now, as a trained global change ecologist and biogeochemist, you've spent a great deal of time working in academia and experiencing and witnessing the continued marginalization of groups that make up the minority in the academic space. So I'd like to bring into conversation a passage you wrote for Loam in an article titled Below Ground Activity. Quote, I think about what the scarcity of women of color in ecological sciences means in the context of climate change, and moreover, under an administration that denies that it is happening. Beyond the intellectual marginalization of Black, Brown, and Indigenous researchers, our scarcity in the natural sciences will impact the communities we come from, end quote. I'd really love to discuss this further, and perhaps you can elaborate on the forced implication of denying people of color access to the ecological sciences in context to climate change. It's, it's very multifaceted, I think. The ways that marginalized or minoritized groups in, let's start with just the United States, the way that these groups are kind of separated from nature, I feel, is the starting point of also being marginalized intellectually within science and potentially having that marginalization trickle down to the types of solutions that will be directly beneficial to marginalized communities at large. So it it kind of, for me, in my view anyway, starts with the fact that we are kind of estranged from the natural world in so many ways. And that estrangement begets this sort of unfamiliarity and discomfort that in my argument is by design so that we do not have the emotional kind of cultural and physical connections with land that other groups, especially those that are more wealthy and often white and often male in, as well have in their experience. And so all of that is kind of the groundwork for being excluded from a sort of intellectual conversation that is pretty much at the core of solving climate-related and ecological problems. And so if we're already estranged and we also don't have this sort of entry point into the scientific world, can these minoritized groups 
and I mean, obviously I'm speaking for myself as well, can we ever meaningfully steer the, the academic and scientific conversations towards questions that directly relate to our lived experiences on the land and in this current climate? And I think the answer is no. And so it's sort of this domino effect of estrangement from the earth. Thank you, Suzanne, for speaking to that. I'm particularly interested in bringing in this idea of the knowledge commons, something you've referenced to, which can be read on your Instagram at critical underscore ecology. If we acknowledge science as a Western colonial institution, which will always struggle to work outside of that framework, then it begs us to ask whether or not there is any benefit in trying to reform it. Or instead, should there be a complete investment in the knowledge commons? My idea of a knowledge commons is relatively nebulous, and there's a reason for that. When I use the phrase a knowledge commons, I don't mean that there should be or there is sort of one repository that's open for all people to to access. That might be a really good idea in and of itself, but when I said that we need a knowledge commons, I more so meant that there needs to be an open exchange between the sort of academic or scientific world and the broader world. And then that knowledge becomes a commons, which is a place, right? Like a commons is actually a physical destination. What I guess I would argue is that the knowledge commons could also be community. Relational kind of estrangement, I I feel is at the heart of so many of these questions about who can participate and how different people are affected in the environment. And so the knowledge commons is also just a, a way to describe a sense of sharing and community that is both kind of intellectual, but is also sort of both ways, right? Like it's, it's bi-directional where scientists should also have access to and hold onto kind of the cultural understandings and the spiritual understandings that are coming from actual communities, especially frontline communities. The knowledge commons is is a little bit more of like a metaphor, I guess, for that relational status. And in the article of yours, I previously mentioned below ground activity, you go on to write, quote, the unique experiences and circumstances of working poor people of color are actively ignored as the majority white, wealthy, and male scientists set the agendas for climate change and sustainability research. The most important mm-hmm. research involves questions scaled to the continent or the globe, and data are then abstracted into national policy recommendations, end quote. Now, this is a topic that I don't believe we've broached on for the wild before, in part because initially it seems like a conversation that would be relegated to the scientific world, but it's so Mm -hmm. critical that all of us engage with this. Now, as someone with firsthand knowledge of how national policy is being shaped by science, can you talk a little bit more about what it means for all of us when middle to upper class white people are the guiding hands behind climate research? Hmm. I'm a preface person and I always preface what I say with a little bit of context. And I want to offer that first when it comes to my comments about how sort of global scale research and models and 
these predictions influence national and international policy. I want to be clear that these types of research and findings are very, very important to our understanding of globally what's happening in our atmosphere. And we need that information, and there's no doubt that it's necessary. But there's also the point that you're kind of honing in on that once these data are collected or once these predictions are made, they are used and applied to policies that are agnostic of the experiences of very specific cultural, economic, and kind of honestly justice contexts. And so when I say that the findings um, and the predictions for future climate and current climate are making it into policy, what I mean there is that they're divorced from the specific communities that will then be affected by those policies. And so this is a little bit of a question of scale. And it is also a question like you're, you're bringing up of who's actually involved in the table, in that exchange between the scientist and the IPCC and the broader international community and then the U.S. government. And so if more diverse voices are not represented at that scale in climate science and also in climate policymaking, the likelihood that those policies and the interpretations for those data are relevant to the frontline communities that are most at risk and often most disenfranchised, it's super low, right? Like it's it's very unlikely that those policies are responsive to the on the ground needs of those communities. So I think that's that is my main criticism. And I I say that criticism with love for science at the same time, you know, like you don't criticize something that you don't want to see get better. And so I think that is sort of another contextual point I always want to make. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder what science in the same vein gets funded depending on who are the scientists chosen or what departments or what universities. Like when Mm -hmm. I think about public policy, I wonder well, who is choosing what gets studied and where? And how Mm -hmm. does that affect people on the ground? Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. maybe there's a refinery or a toxic spill. And what are the elements of that disaster that's getting studied? And who gets to actually have that knowledge if parts are studied? And how does that relate back to the communities that are being affected? Mm -hmm. I think about that even with forest research. And sometimes I wonder, well, Who's paying for that forest research and what is the end goal of it and who gets to benefit? Is it the logging companies? Mm-hmm. Is it the communities in the area? Is it the salmon people? And so, yeah, I kind of sometimes get lost in that vortex of what is actually yeah. even being chosen to be studied. You're asking a really good question about the stakeholders involved in different types of of science making. So, I guess I'll say first that There are a lot more researchers now and maybe in the last 20 years that have been dedicated to and successfully getting funded questions, scientific questions and research questions that 
are related to the communities that are being affected. And that's that's from climate change effects. This is in cases of extreme weather. This is in terms of kind of risk assessment for climate impacts, even questions like you're mentioning with land use effects of things like logging or clear cutting or dam creation and impacts on sort of the the biology and the ecology that results. So there are researchers who are, are dedicated to actually asking questions that bridge the gap between the purely ecological or the purely sort of earth science and the people, both local and indigenous, who are interacting with those phenomena. Um, but are they the most flashy or well-funded labs? Are they the most kind of reputable or I guess those that get the most sort of credibility as being top scientific labs? No, not always. And so that's the transition point that I want to see. I think that if there aren't people, scientists and their collaborators pushing forward to get work that is community oriented and community engaged done, there will never be this sort of tipping point of, hey, we actually recognize a you know, geoscience lab that's doing the basic science only as highly as a lab that is doing community-informed work about soil toxins, for example. So it feels like an uphill battle, but I guess I'm just trying to make the point that it's not that those types of researchers don't exist. It's that they just are underappreciated in a lot of cases, but persistent and I support their persistence. Now, there is another part of this conversation that feels incredibly important to begin naming and exploring, which is this narrative around inclusion of people of color as a response to the legacy of science, STEM as a hostile space, or to combat narratives of exclusion in the academy. And while I recognize that this may not be the intent, it seems that the tokenization that takes place occurs under the pretense that the perspective of people of color is only brought forth to be in conversation with whiteness, race, or racism. And so I'm drawing from an article titled 
Black Speculation, Black Freedom by Petal Samuel, where they ask, quote, Mm. what subtly complexity and richness of human experience is lost when Black life is understood exclusively as a resistance project? Is there room in our scholarly examinations for Black interiority, forms of community, joy, frivolity, or contradiction, end quote. I wonder how that thought has come to you in your own experience as well, in that the ecological sciences need a multitude of voices, not just as a response to environmental racism, but to bring in new perspectives altogether. When I was an undergraduate, I was not a science major. I intended to become a journalist, maybe an environmental journalist, but I was very, very uncomfortable with STEM concepts, period. I was always told that I was not a science kid. That's the kind of high school I went to. And I don't think that was out of malice. I think it was just, it was unclear how to relate to science, to relate to math, if you didn't hold an identity that had been put forward as oriented towards those concepts. When I did get around to being an undergrad and thinking about science and thinking about like, well, I love the environment. I love nature. I love soil. Could it be possible for me to pursue this as sort of a a career? And one of the reasons that I ended up choosing to go in that direction and eventually become a scientist was because I thought about scientific knowledge held by people who were not typically in the canon of science as being its own sort of revolution, not a response and not a resistance, but a world in and of itself that I could create simply by existing as a woman who is Black, who is of mixed heritage, who is also a scientist. And I feel like that is connected to the quote you just shared, because there is this sort of power in interiority when it comes to science that there's sort of, I guess, a a purity in being able to to show something and to know something and have it be in conversation with other discoveries and thoughts and that not have to be an act of resistance. Like that is a sort of world-making that I wanted to be a part of by becoming a scientist. And so I think one of the ways that I am starting to see our like existence as people of color, as women, as queer people in science, one of the ways that I see us changing the way science is as a world is by living our identities as like directly in conversation with the knowledge making and not in a way that is in response or in competition with or as a factor of sort of the larger body of white dominant science. It's almost like an an act of non-engagement, like an act of refusal is an act of world making. And so that's, that's how I sort of revolt against tokenization, that I'm not an addition to science. I am sort of a new emissary of science altogether. And, and that's how I see myself. That is so beautiful. Thank you for speaking with such heart and clarity and bravery and this unwillingness to compromise in how you show up. I have chills and I'm just taking that in for a minute. 
So something that feels relevant is how accessibility to nature serves as a social filter to the ecological sciences. And I feel like you were speaking to this earlier, and you've written about this before in Environmental Experiences Have Racial Roots, published by Free Radicals. I'd like to bring it up now because I think it expands the conversation around the whiteness of science in a way that often isn't done. There's much more attention brought to the ways in which STEM itself remains steeped in patriarchy and white supremacy, and there's plenty of work that explores how science has perpetuated its own type of imperialism. But I think less so are people talking about how this is happening before students even get into the classroom. So can you speak to the right to know the soil, stars, and water, and access to land in terms of well-being, whole being, and the implications this has on how knowledge is produced? Yeah. This connects to our last couple of exchanges about world making and about a speculative future that involves and centers people of color and other minoritized identities. Because if we are alienated from that which we are made of, we are poised not to have any stake in what happens to it. And if we are not stakeholders in that future, we are sort of like a silent majority, a non-voting majority. And you can vote in lots of different ways, right? And obviously there's the civic way, but there's also sort of how you spend your days. And I think that the option has existed for white people in the modern world to be scientists. And that not only is that sort of a somewhat reasonable path, but, you know, a valorized path as well. Like the fact that that has existed for one subset of the Earth's sort of population means that there's a whole kind of constituency of the Earth, of the climate, of ecology that's non-voting. I'm I'm saying this kind of over and over again, but I kind of don't care because it feels like the message that I want to to share with people is that there are a bunch of moments in our shared cultural history that have alienated us from land and have made us sort of uncomfortable or distrustful in some cases of land. But by rekindling that relationship, we kind of step back into the voting body. And then we have the opportunity through relationship to an experience like going for a walk in your neighborhood and paying attention to what the trees are doing in that season or paying attention to what birds are flying around in your neighborhood, you know, sticking your toes in the creek that runs behind a school. Those types of ecological interactions and experiences are the ways that we kind of we are re-enfranchised. That gives us the opportunity as once minoritized and marginalized people to vote with our lives, right? So by becoming scientists, we vote with our lives. By becoming activists, we vote with our lives. By becoming farmers, by becoming educators. And so I feel like there's just this 
really fine but important connection there between the actual experience and normalization of that experience and then our ability to act and and be on the land in a way that is that is voting yes for the land and i want that back for us i just do mm-hmm. i love voting with our lives voting with our bodies i love the image of dipping the toes in the creek I think sometimes our world, this dominant culture, can make things really complex, which they are, of course. But then there is also this beautiful simplicity of just being alive and being human and what that means to reconnect and how reconnection can actually be so simple and so quiet. And that type of space that we can give ourselves to be in that quiet space to reconnect is so powerful. And, and that's kind of the energy that I'm I'm hearing from you right now. And I'm really grateful to you for it, that you're able to juggle so much complexity and also bring the message to this simple and gentle connection point. I think it's it's really unique that you're able to hold so many pieces and weave them together in this way. And thank you. During your keynote speech at the 2018 Healing the Earth Conference at the University of California, titled Ecology as a Locus for Social Change, you addressed the researchers' relationship to space. And since listening, I've really been thinking about this topic, how scientists are afforded transcendence in their mobility through place because of the perceived objectivity of their field. I also think back to my interview with M. Jackson as she spoke about how glaciologists often participate in a very extractive form of science that is akin to anthropology. And I wonder how now more than ever, with the rise of climate change studies as a field, how do we need to disavow this idea of objective science as paradoxical as that may sound? Man, to me, it is not... A paradox at all. It's a reckoning. It would be finally truth telling, really. I think you'll notice, like in a lot of places in sort of our culture and sort of how society works right now, obfuscating truth is a way of getting things done, right? We find that fake news, like we are comfortable with that concept all of a sudden, right? Like there's an active practice of disinformation that is important for how politics operates, how economics and financial markets operate. But I guess I just want scientists and and those who care about how science operates to recognize that, that there's a bit of that in what we do too, and there always has been. And I'm a party to it, right? Like I'm not saying that I'm apart from it and looking down at it or across some kind of chasm, I mean to say that we depend on the lie of full objectivity as a way of doing what we do with a smoothness and a frictionlessness that aids us surely in getting the information we need to publish and find you know, scientific discoveries and make them known. But we have something to own up to, which is also that 
the sense that our roots of our disciplines, so I'll just stick with maybe plant science, for example. We know what we know about plants because of movement and because of borderlessness within science, right? There is no way that we would be, at least in the Western science canon, that we would be able to know and and hold as much information as we do about the plants of the world without the sort of borderlessness of science. And I think that that's rooted in the sort of half-truth of objectivity, that people from across the globe could show up in a place that had never heard of what they were doing. What is this sort of taxonomic system? What is this naming protocol that you're using? And appear as officials, right? Appear as authorities on what they're doing and go in, hire labor from the local area to then go deep into lands that were unfamiliar and find plants and give them names. And so how that's objective to me is completely beyond, right? Because there are two or more contexts that had to come together and interact for that sort of discovery to be made. And so that's just one example of like the way that we have kind of glazed over that lack of objectivity and we take for granted, at least in the present, that is what we rely on to get our permits, to get our plane tickets, to get our visas, to set up shop and start digging. And there's something about that It doesn't sit right with me. And if we are to make a a world that is more equitable, if we are to make a future where we survive and thrive in a sort of post-climate disaster scenario, it will require this kind of truth reckoning too on all fronts. But I can only speak for what I do as a profession, which is to ask for my colleagues and people who pay attention to science to join in that reckoning and and start to like actually live and work in a way that's based on truth. And I apologize for that being the longest way <laughs> to answer your question. I could have listened to a much longer response. So thank <laughs> you for that. And I I'm so glad that our conversation will oscillate between soil matter and the importance of decolonizing science and building the knowledge commons and and all so much of the work that you've cultivated under critical ecology, specifically your area of focus on carbon and nutrient cycling in terrestrial environments and soil at the molecular level. So my yeah. question for you at this point is why is biogeochemistry and understanding nutrient cycling particularly important amidst climate change? As the name suggests, biogeochemistry is the study of the connections between the living things, both plants and animals and microorganisms in the world, the geology, so the actual, what we call parent material, right? Which is always the most beautiful thing uh, to me, the parent material, the rocks that were here before the soil was formed and before plants evolved. We're talking about just the literal bedrock that is weathered away to contribute to the kind of biosphere and atmosphere, and then chemistry. And so 
what we're really studying is the chemical exchange between all of the living and non-living parts of the environment, from the rocks I mentioned, to the water, to soil, and to air. And so why it's really important to the climate, there's almost too many ways to say, but I guess the one that I feel is most accessible is that everything that's happening in our climate is related to chemical changes and energetic exchanges. And that's what biogeochemists study, right? Like we want to understand the changes in exchanges in energy, as well as the exchanges of matter. So carbon, nitrogen, and all of the other elements from our bodies, from animals' bodies, from plants' bodies, and from microorganisms out into the non-living world. And that's actually what forces and changes climate. Like our climate is formed because of the plants that are distributed across this earth. And we can't understand climate whatsoever without understanding how plants biologically operate. We can't understand why climate is changing without understanding how carbon is either taken up or decomposed in plants and how those plants are also dependent on things like the parent material, right? So place is everything and chemistry is everything. And without putting all of those together with the biology, we could not understand why our atmosphere is doing what it's doing and will be doing what it's doing in the future. I'd love to delve more into nitrogen and its impact in these cycles, particularly because it feels like a topic that receives little to no attention outside of the scientific circles, despite its severity. For example, back in March of 2019, the UN launched its Frontier Report, exploring the five most significant issues on the environment, with nitrogen pollution being one. So can you speak to the ramifications of nitrogen pollution on our air and water? And how did we get to this point? And why might there be such public silence on this issue? So what is nitrogen and what is nitrogen pollution? First, let's just define that. So nitrogen is an element, you know, it's in the periodic table. It is a prime component of the proteins, the amino acids, that we eat, that make up our bodies, that make up plant tissues. It is a core element in most energetic processes in biology. And the reason that nitrogen is actually kind of critical for influencing climate is twofold. So first, 
it's that the nitrogen cycle is mediated by microbes, right? So all of the other elements, other um, important compounds like water that recycle through the, the earth in different forms do so on mostly somewhat biological, but mostly physical. So based on things like temperature and pressure and, and erosion. And so those are physical processes, right? But nitrogen cycling requires transformations that only certain microbes can do to actually bring nitrogen into a form that plants can take up and that we can actually use for consumption or energy production. And so I think to answer one of your questions, the reason that we don't hear about nitrogen as much as we do is because it's the way it moves through all parts of the earth is sort of complicated and it is biological and requires you to kind of talk about things that people can't see, like microbes, right? So there's that sort of bottleneck of information of that's kind of a heavy lift for a lot of people, even other scientists who don't think about nitrogen. And the way that nitrogen pollution operates is also complicated. So the way that we get nitrogen pollution largely is through fossil fuel burning and introduction of nitrogen into the atmosphere through fossil fuel burning and also certain agricultural practices. And so I won't go into the nitty gritty of all of that, but it is to say that we rely on forms of energy and forms of fertilizer that are nitrogen rich, but turn nitrogen into forms and put nitrogen into places where it is either not supposed to be sort of in the way that that the ecosystem would naturally function, but also puts nitrogen into kind of chemical forms that lead to problems like warming and also problems like acidification of soils and eutrophication. So enrichment of basically nutrients into surface waters in places like the Gulf of Mexico, for example. So the nitrogen cycle is a heavy lift for lots of people because it has so many moving parts and so many key players. And I feel like this is the reason why we most people don't think about nitrogen when they think about environmental degradation and climate change. But I really hope that that changes. I have like an emotional like love affair with nitrogen. Like it's a very tender, dear thing to me, but it's also something that I feel like everyone needs to kind of at least a little understand to be able to grapple with the complexity of what's happening in our environment. And so I hope in some ways that I can try to, to make our understanding of nitrogen as kind of accessible and commonplace as our understanding of carbon seems to be getting and, and also water. So again, a long one for you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good long one. Another issue we're facing is the decline of nitrogen in forest soils. And scientists have been warning about the widespread decline of nitrogen in forest soils and its impact on climate mitigation. Of course, yeah. spending so much of my life in service to the forest, this is a topic that I'm especially interested in discussing. And so perhaps we could also speak to some of the issues forest soils are experiencing more broadly in relation to clear cutting or even selective logging. For example, I've seen how once a forest is clear-cut, the soil is degraded from machine work, topsoil disruption, sun damage, and of course the list goes on. 
So what does this mean for future generations of trees that are now being planted in poor soil conditions? Can you share more with us about the process of soil regeneration? And can soil that once nourished old growth forest be regenerated in our lifetime after experiencing such destruction? So the process or processes that lead to nitrogen losses from soil and and ultimately lead to pollution of groundwater and surface water and also lead to the production of certain greenhouse gases that have nitrogen in them that lead to warming. Those disturbances are, I guess they are, again, ways of, of taking nitrogen out of forms or places in the environment where it should be and moving it into forms and places where it should not be. And what do I mean by that? I guess I'll take your example of clear cutting. So when you lose standing forest biomass, so above ground and below ground parts of a tree, when that is removed from the landscape, there is sort of a a repository for nutrients like nitrogen that is taken away, right? The tree was taking up nitrogen out of the soil in order to build its leaves and do photosynthesis and grow. Once that tree or that whole forest is no longer there, that nitrogen is not as able to kind of cling to both the soil, and I'm using this sort of metaphorically, but be held by the soil and so can be lost through water that is you know, running over the soil and not being taken up by the tree and not being held onto by, by a rich, organic, rich soil. And so all of that is basically like your coffee filter sort of dripping and leaching that coffee out of the soil, but in this case, into groundwater and into surface water, right? And so that's how we get this depopulated, once rich forest soil through the loss of that live plant biomass. And on the other hand, we also lose nitrogen from soils as gases. Going back to those microbes I mentioned, there are certain types of microbes in soils that can transform that nitrogen compound that's in the soil, held onto in the soil, transform it into a gas, and that gas is lost into the atmosphere. And in some cases, as a greenhouse gas that then contributes to warming even more. So this is another way that we get sort of losses of nitrogen that are cyclical, but they are often set off or started up by disturbances like you're mentioning. And all that is to say is the existence of old growth forest is a matter of patience and not necessarily a lack of disturbance because some forms of disturbance are natural and in fact like necessary to the development of forest ecosystems and different types of forests. But the stages of development of a forest from bare, kind of low nutrition soil, all the way to an old growth forest, which is, hopefully I'm saying the right thing, but um, we're talking about forests that are older than 100 or 200 years that have not been cut. I don't think that we will be able to see that exact process in our lifetimes. But I would also argue that might not be a goal that we need to set for ourselves as far as getting back on the track of allowing natural processes to function without anthropogenic disturbance. So maybe there is a realistic and still ecologically um, sound goal to set, which is perhaps to say, 
can we restore forests that we've lost to kind of a, a comparable level of plant diversity and microbial diversity in the soil that that we see in in more preserved or under disturbed forests that feels like a stepping stone that that is approachable and and sometimes i feel like the use of even terms like old growth while old growth forests when when you go to them you will have your breath taken away maybe that is a a goal that keeps us from making progress because it feels so grand and feels so huge and i'm not very good at big plans i like little plans mhm well thank you for all of that and as we wrap up this interview I'd like to return to soil and the new entry points that climate change necessitates. Lately, I've been really struck by the notion of repair and what sort of mending is required of us when we're living in a moment marked by planetary breakdown. So I wonder what you've learned from the soil in terms of your own practice and being in this world, and what new frameworks are you inspired by? You and I were talking about this in our earlier chat about slowing down and pausing, man, I will start to get emotional if I really open this can of worms, but I have developed a certain unexpected patience with myself that really mirrors the way that that soil operates, that, that mirrors the pace at which forests develop and communities, ecological communities change over time. I have started to have compassion for myself, which I think is a a direct kind of borrowed approach from the natural environment because I start to notice that things are how they are in every moment that we are in. And that's true for a forest in the particular moment in its in its growth and development that it's in. And it's true for me and it's true for us, right? Like there's um there's a sort of uh chaoticness that I feel in thinking about the past and analyzing the past and worrying about the future and and kind of handling all of my different, you know, personal and societal and ecological anxieties all at once. And what I've realized is that I guess the kind of compassion that I need to have for myself and need to have for other people can be observed in the way that that soil is slow and forests are slow, that they are the way they are. And they're neither good nor bad, right? Like a depauperate soil is bad only because we need it, right? Or it is, it is needed, but in and of itself, you know, a soil that is degraded and doesn't have enough nitrogen to support plants, it isn't bad in and of itself. It's just in process, right? That's how it works. The nitrogen is going to come back to it. The carbon organic matter will rebuild. And so in that snapshot, it actually just is what it is. And so when I lose it and I feel like I'm not doing all the things that I need to be or should be or can be doing... I guess I have to think in that way. And so to answer one of your questions about what frameworks and modes are really inspiring to me, I guess the little dabbling in Buddhism that I have sort of begun to have some curiosity about has helped me to make a merge between those two, the relationship between 
the way that the earth operates and the scale and rates at which the earth operates and the scales and rates at which we expect ourselves and society to operate and to have compassion for both of those things and to see them as not sort of so different just because of scale is part of what's keeping me sane right now. It's part of what's keeping me in the fight for my people and for the earth. Because if you take it all at once, it's too much. But if it is what it is and it's in progress, then maybe like that's, that's something we can work with. I feel how deeply connected you are to this earth, to these issues, to your work, to your love, to the way that you show up in this life, to your devotion. And I'm so happy you are who you are and that, that you are teaching others and being a voice of reason and truth and courage and that you're holding so many intersections really gracefully and clearly and I'm sure it doesn't feel that way all the time <laughs> yes I could imagine that being true for you because I think when you're in it and you're a leader and you're really pushing it's hard to step back and see in the ways that others see you I can say on my own personal level I too feel similarly in that way just I don't feel like I'm holding it together most of the time and I feel like I'm falling apart and picking myself back up together every hour or every sometimes 30 minutes during the day it's crazy and I think yeah for those of us who are that engaged and integrated in what's happening it's a lot to handle it's a lot just to know it's a lot to be in the research it's a lot to be in the truth but then also trying to figure out how to forge forward and be a voice of truth on top of just dealing with our own personal mm -hmm. capacity to even understand it and then to be making the right moves and be in integrity and and try to see all the different angles it's whoo it's a lot it's a lot and i see you doing that so i'm so grateful for you i'm so grateful for your your being at this time and i hope that you are able to nurture yourself and others can nurture you as you hold so much in this world cuz i i think that we all have our roles and your role is extremely important and it's it's intense so right. yeah right. mm -hmm. ayana thank you so much just for yeah like what other space could i have said all those things in mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't know so thank you for creating a little cosm for us to be in together and we're being very gentle and open yeah and and making space so mm -hmm. yeah thank you for that thank you for listening to another episode of for the wild podcast i'm ayana young the music you heard today was by aisha badru handmade moments and the Pit Yak Ayadu. I'd like to take a moment and give a bow of gratitude to our production team, Aidan McRae, Andrew Storrs, Carly McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and Melanie Younger.